Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Ilya Shapiro, director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. His new book is Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Ilya. Finally get you on. Yeah, it's good to be on. I, I, you had to perfect the uh, you know the, the, the proof of concept sufficiently for, for me to, to grace your airways. Yeah, it took 365 episodes or something, so it all worked out, but good to have you on. Um, so let's start by uh, just talking about the rules of the game. What does the Constitution say about judicial appointments and confirmations, and, and what role are the various branches supposed to play? Article 3 says that the there shall be a Supreme Court and such lower courts as Congress may create. And it also says... Uh, that the president shall uh, uh, nominate and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges to the Supreme Court. And that is it. As far as we're concerned uh, about the judicial nomination and confirmation process, that is all the Constitution says. What does advice mean in that context? You know, um, there were debates about this at the founding, uh, whether to provide a more precise definition. Uh, and ultimately, they left it general to allow the Senate to exercise its prerogative as it sees fit. Uh, and uh, that means giving advice beforehand to the president that, you know, this candidate is better than that one. Uh, or it means uh, uh, after the nomination, uh, whether in public or to the president or on the, the final, what's come to be uh, understood, confirmation vote. Um, but that's... Uh, you know, that's as far as, as this has become defined. And really, it's become defined more in, in terms of practice and tradition, uh, more than in terms of, you know, legal fleshing out. So in that first first months of or the first years of the new government, we had George Washington needing to appoint six justices to the Supreme Court. What was what, what did the how did he look at his job of appointing justices? Well, each president, going back to Washington, uh, considered political factors. Uh, by definition, the president is a politician. Senators are politicians. Uh, and the, the issue or issues of the day changed. With the, with the first setting up the first court, um, the, the, the key factor that, that Washington uh, looked at was, were they committed to the new government? Were they committed to the new constitution? Uh, how did they view the judicial role? Did they see the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary as being an important player? Did they see the federal government as being an important player in, you know, establishing the the new nascent republic? And so, uh, even you know, being very careful and having been by definition a, a founding father, uh, Washington uh, nominated someone who uh, declined uh, declined to the, the nomination. Um, uh, unusual circumstance, uh, but uh, even of that that first slew, uh, he had to do a, a redo. It wasn't a very prestigious job at the time, though, uh, to, to say the least. In those first decade, first decade at least at the Supreme Court. That's right. Uh, it wasn't just in Washington's days with the original six, as we can call them. If you're a hockey fan, that resonates perhaps. Uh, but in the first uh, few decades. Uh, if you were a prominent lawyer in uh, in Boston, say, or if you had a legal practice, or if you're on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, uh, why would you give up those uh, uh, remunerative, prestigious, uh, comfortable jobs to go down to the swamp? Uh, well, originally it was the, the the Washington. There was no White House. The you know they kind of alternated between. New York and, and, and eventually Washington, D.C. Anyway, go down there where there was no building for the Supreme Court. It was housed in the basement of the Senate. Uh, originally, there weren't that many uh, interesting or important cases. And you had to ride circuit, literally ride on horseback uh, or horse and buggy to the far flung states to help set up this new federal judiciary. I mean, this was a, a grueling, a rigorous job physically, uh, in addition to uh, the mental uh, challenges or, or tediousness, what have you. So indeed, there were a number of people in our history who declined to serve. 
uh, or to decline the nomination, and even who declined to serve after being confirmed, the communications being what they were. Sometimes somebody would be nominated and confirmed by the Senate in the same day because it wasn't a controversial pick. But by the time news reached, uh, you know, Richmond, Boston, Philadelphia, what have you, and they said, why would I want this job and, and declined to serve? Did Marbury v. Madison – in 1803 and the rise of judicial review changed some of the calculus for confirmation hearings because this was effectively the Supreme Court articulating the doctrine that says that it gets to be the supreme law of the land or the supreme decider of the law of the land. And so suddenly it placed itself in a certain way above Congress. So did Congress then change the way it thought about who would get to appoint, who it would allow to be appointed to the Supreme Court? Well, uh, in asking that question, Aaron, it's kind of funny. You uh, you stated a malapropism. You might not have realized, but you said that that affect confirmation hearings. We didn't actually have confirmation hearings until 1916, and we'll, we'll get to that and, and why that was. Uh, but uh, you, what you mean was, did it affect confirmations? Did it affect the type of people who are nominated? Uh, it did somewhat. Uh, I mean, I think Marbury v. Madison in its day, uh, the idea of judicial review was not controversial. I mean, the, you know, what to do with the judicial commissions after the disputed election of the bitterly fought election of Adams versus Jefferson. That was certainly controversial. But the idea of judicial review and the, the Supreme Court ruling on the propriety, the constitutionality of federal legislation. Remember, this was not uh, invalidating state laws uh, or anything like that. So it was not challenging, you know, state sovereignty or anything like that. Uh, the, the the fights about nullification, uh, nothing to do with that. This was about the growth and and. And, and power of the federal government and within the federal government, uh, the strength of the judiciary to check the other branches. Uh, and so, yes, uh, it, it did make uh, the Supreme Court more important. It did make those jobs uh, more prestigious, more significant. And uh, Marbury v. Madison, remember, the chief justice was John Marshall, a uh, very significant player, perhaps the most significant uh, chief justice that we've had. Uh, and a lot of people in think of him mistakenly as the first chief justice. He was not. He was the third. Uh, but, uh, and this again goes back to, to your question, because everything that went on for the first uh, 15 years before Marbury was quite insignificant. And so it was, you know, Marbury was really the birth of uh, the new court or the, you know, the, the Supreme Court coming into its own, in a, in a sense, of really being its own separate branch rather than some sort of weird appendage that occasionally issued some uh, some random decision. Now, we know about James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and others being involved in debates in the very early 1790s about the National Bank and other ways of construing the Constitution. From the beginning there, or at least in the first few decades, did we see anything like a debate that we would call maybe in the 70s strict constructionists versus loose constructionists? Uh, was that kind of debate even going on that early uh, between the people nominated to the court? Well, it wasn't so much a debate about, uh, you know, originalism when the people who were the the, the originals, uh, who, who the founding fathers, the framers were still uh, alive and could opine and could say, actually, what I meant by that or what I intended or however you want to define originalism back in the day. No, it wasn't so much uh, that, um, you know, the McCulloch versus Maryland um, and Gibbons versus Ogden about the scope of federal power and the meaning of the necessary and proper clause and what kind of powers were incident to the enumerated powers in the Constitution. They had those kinds of debates, but it wasn't so much, um, you know, what we would recognize now as, you know, the, the original, the original meaning of the text versus kind of a more pragmatic or living constitutional uh, interpretation where the words, the, the provisions evolve. It was just really trying to understand uh, what uh, the Constitution meant uh, when, you know, that was still the, the founding generation. So in that first, let's say, pre-antebellum years or whatever line we want to draw, in terms of the political fights over nominees, what were the main considerations if, if, if it, they weren't talking about originalism or strict constructionism or whatever? Uh, what would be the reason that someone would be would be not confirmed uh, to the court, like the most common reasons? Well, the most common reason was that the party opposite the president controlled the Senate. That's a, that's a very practical legal realist or political realist explanation for when we have uh, failed uh, confirmations. In our history, 
uh, and I'll get back to the time period momentarily, but in our history, we've now had 164 uh, nominations. Of those, 127 were confirmed for an overall confirmation rate of uh, just over three quarters. Uh, But when there's divided government, when the party opposite to the president controls the Senate, uh, the rate of confirmation is south of 60%. When it's united government, it's about uh, 90%. And in that antebellum period, as you said, and especially in the period uh, after the founding, uh, you know, the second, third generation uh, of the republic, uh, during a time of party realignments, uh, you know, the Federalists faded away, the Democratic Republicans were uh, regnant, but then they split between the Jacksonians and, and others, which became the, the Whigs and eventually uh, the Republican Party. Uh, that kind of tumult did produce a lot of uh, political opposition, not so much based on interpretive theory of the Constitution or otherwise, a little bit about what the proper role of the federal government is, or even more what the federal government should be doing, regardless of whether, you know, even if it's constitutional, should it be intruding uh, in in various ways in in how the states had uh, become accustomed to to governing themselves. Uh, And so those uh, those factions within the parties or within the the, the Democratic Party, when it was effectively the the only game in town, was a really big deal. And so uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, you know, was a towering figure, of course, in the antebellum period. Uh, but even he had uh, a couple of uh, misfires, a, uh, a postponement, uh, Roger Taney, whom he uh, nominated after he had failed to nominate Taney to be Treasury Secretary. Um, uh, Taney's nomination to the court was, quote, postponed indefinitely. Love that Senate euphemism of procedure and, until uh, he eventually was confirmed after the after a, a midterm election when the, when the Jacksonians gained in the uh, in the Senate. Uh, but really, uh, between Jackson and Lincoln, to, to talk about that, specifically the antebellum period, only eight of 21 nominees were confirmed. I mean, it's quite remarkable. John Tyler, for example, who was known as his accidency, he assumed the presidency after William Henry Harrison caught pneumonia and died after his uh, extra long inaugural address during that snowstorm in March when he didn't have the, the overcoat. And uh, Tyler kind of joined the Harrison ticket as a party balancer. Uh, and so ultimately, when he uh, became president, uh, no, he was not trusted by uh, the Whigs. He was not trusted by the Democrats. And ultimately, I think he made nine nominations in total, several people multiple times, and only had uh, one person confirmed. So very tumultuous period, uh, weak, relatively speaking, uh, executive, uh, regional differences, expanding country, you have to placate different uh, sectional allegiances in addition to uh, ideology. But it wasn't, again, it wasn't this debate, you know, do you see the, uh, do you have the right position on either the proper role of the judiciary or the Bank of the United States, which was the key issue under Jackson specifically, uh, or slavery per se. Uh, That figured in a little bit um, and uh, even more so, you know, uh, in, in the lead up to the Civil War. But it really was more kind of, base politics and uh, uh, are you aligned properly with the president? Have you, has the president consulted uh, and balanced uh, regional interests, uh, different factions within his party, that sort of thing? Do we have a sense of what potential candidate or potential nominee vetting looked like at this time or in the early republic? Because a lot of, a lot of contemporary stuff now that goes on behind the scenes is pouring through a potential nominee's scholarly history, life story, and so on to make sure that, you know, to the extent we can, we've precluded any surprises or anything that's going to blow up a nomination or make it too controversial. Did they, did they do that? Did they make that effort or was it, was it kind of an easier, you know, eh, this guy looks good sort of thing? Yeah. The, the, the Twitter and blogging records from the 1840s have been lost to uh, history, but um, it's it's sort of like you want someone who's who's qualified generally. I mean, there were some you know very crony kind of lightweights uh, that were considered, but generally uh, presidents wanted someone who would be respected as a justice. But that was only step one. You wanted uh, to balance uh, to fill you know regional interest. The Supreme Court was con- you know conceived of um, not on paper, but this was how it came uh, about. There was a New England seat. There was a New York seat. A Virginia or Southern became Southern seat. 
Pennsylvania, you know, the, as the country expanded the, uh, the Western seat, meaning Kentucky, Tennessee, that sort of thing. And so the president, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of them uh, wanted to appoint someone who is more loyal, but they happened to be from the wrong state. Or there were debates of, well, this person was born in that state, but very quickly moved to Ohio. And was that good enough? Uh, those kinds of, of, of things, as well as, you know, it was, it was really this political balancing consideration um, again, much more than uh, either uh, jurisprudential philosophy or uh, their political position on on one key issue, as as sort of came to the fore, you know, in the in the decades that followed with Reconstruction and then the Industrial Age, the proper regulation of uh, uh, of uh, you know the trusts and the railroads and and things like that. Those those became uh, came to the fore, but in that. In that antebellum period, it was all this uh, regionalisms, which which still became was still important for another half century or or, or more, um, uh, as well as um, you know, uh, was there sufficient support uh, among all these disparate uh, party machines in different parts of the country? Well, they also didn't wouldn't have. If you think about the records that people have, it seemed like reading your book that there were fewer. Fewer people raised from the lower federal courts to the Supreme Court than there would than there were senators and members of Congress and maybe governors and other kind of cabinet secretaries. That was way more common then. Yes, relatively speaking, there were still elevations, uh, especially when we get to the second half of the 19th century. But yeah, in the first half, there were relatively few federal judges. Um, you know, the, the the ratio of you know there were there were six or seven or eight uh, as we progressed Supreme Court justices. Um, but the federal judges, I mean, it was one per district, basically. And the, the justices originally traveled in pairs. And, there, you know, a, 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 a district court was composed of two justices and one district judge, because that's just the way the ratios worked. Um, uh, but, but uh, uh, yeah, there were more state court judges who were picked, uh, and there were more other types of politicians. You're, you're right. It wasn't uh, the direct kind of line that you have to first audition in the, in the, in the circuit courts before being elevated. So is there like a is there a moment where not a moment but you mentioned that into the 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 later part of the 19th century where you start having some maybe ideological debates about trusts, railroads, big businesses, things like this. And then it seems like around that time and maybe it was Roosevelt from reading this book that you start seeing more people saying I need a, a justice who has a specific philosophy about especially big businesses. It seemed like that maybe was the kind of the first kind of ph- philosophical vetting kind of moment. Yeah. The very early part of the 20th century with, with Teddy Roosevelt and then William Howard Taft uh, looking at the quote unquote real politics. And that didn't necessarily mean judicial philosophy, but it meant, I don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. I don't care whether you're, you know, we will take some geographic considerations into account, but look, what I really want to know is, are you going to be capital P progressive on breaking up the trusts and pushing back on the banks? Or with Taft, are you going to be more laissez-faire? Are you going to, you know, what is your what is your perspective? Not even how do you interpret the Constitution or what is your method of statutory interpretation, but but your real politics, your political views, which can be instantiated into uh, legal views fairly easier because there wasn't that much of a federal code to implement and. Um, the, the Constitution was was fairly pro-economic uh, uh, liberty. So it's just a matter of, you know, you have the Antitrust Act and you have the Sherman Act and you had uh, other tools at, at your disposal. But that's really when, uh, you know, it, it, beyond satisfying factions within your party, it became, I really want this kind of judge to rule this way on my pet issues. So after the the Teddy Roosevelt era, and you said Taft, who of course would become Chief Justice himself. You had mentioned, as you corrected Aaron, that confirmation hearings were not a thing until who? Until Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and uh, this is following when Taft was a one-term president, but he got to make uh, six appointments, including five of them, I think, in the course of 18 months. Uh, just remarkable uh, period when you think about that uh, Jimmy Carter, for example, Zachary Taylor didn't get to make any appointments in a, in a four-year term. Uh, so Taft got to make uh, the six and really push the court into a more pro-economic liberty, deregulatory sort of environment. And that's what he focused on. So his appointments might have gone in different ways on questions of civil rights or uh, executive power in, in, in different ways. But in terms of economic liberty and deregulation, that's 
they were they were more aligned. But then along comes Woodrow Wilson, who was a you know towering uh, jurisprudential intellect, uh, former president of Princeton and a constitutional law professor, knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, out of the Supreme Court, you know, big progressive, the administrative state. We don't need political accountability because we just have rule by the experts. We know what the right policy is on any given uh, any given area. So we just need the courts to uh, empower uh, the experts. Uh, and uh, even though, even with that, uh, Wilson's three appointments uh, probably had the biggest, the widest range of appointments of any president. Um, his first one was James McReynolds, a uh, cantankerous old coot who uh, probably agreed with Wilson on little other than uh, a belief in antitrust and uh, and bigotry. Um, other than that, uh, Reynolds very quickly joined the Taft nominees, uh, at least most of them, uh, as one of what became known as the, the, the Four Musketeers, uh, pushing back on... Um, uh, kind of supporting the Lochner era, that is deregulation, uh, a constitutional view of the freedom of contract and economic liberty that the government cannot uh, uh, invade. And then his next nominee was Louis Brandeis. And this is where we come to the first confirmation hearing, who not only was the first Jewish nominee and became the first Jewish justice, uh, but uh, was a, uh, a progressive crusader. I mean, very with Wilson, a close advisor of Wilson on policy matters. Uh, and that was hugely controversial in addition to uh, to being Jewish. Uh, it took, uh, what, nearly five months uh, to, to have his whole confirmation run. The eventual vote was a little broader than some of the, the recent ones we've had in the last couple of decades, but hugely controversial, so controversial that the Senate called hearings for the first time. Now, it was seen as unseemly for the nominee himself to testify, so Brandeis didn't testify. There were people pro and con his views, and ultimately uh, he was confirmed. But again, such a tumultuous, controversial period that then his new colleague, Charles Evans Hughes, resigned to run against Woodrow Wilson in that fall's presidential election campaign. So anyone who says that, you know, 2020, 2016 were the apogee of the uh, intersection of presidential election politics and Supreme Court vacancies, yeah, I see that, but I'll raise you 1916. And to, to close the circle on on Wilson, his third nominee caused by that resignation of his political opponent was John Hessen Clark, who served for all of five years and was basically a, a footnote uh, in our history. So even though Wilson knew exactly what he was doing, understood the Constitution as he saw it perfectly well, uh, still had kind of misfires in people that were uh, all over the map. But anyway, that 196 hearing was the first one. It didn't set the precedent that now Every nominee would have to have a hearing. Some of them did in the next couple of decades. Some of them didn't. The first nominee to testify uh, on his own uh, uh, right uh, in kind of open-ended questions, as opposed to specifically about a particular scandal uh, he might have overseen or, or what have you, was uh, Felix Frankfurter in 1938, uh, 1939, also a Jew, by the by. Uh, but it didn't. Uh, hearings didn't become a regular process until the 1950s when Dixiecrat senators, uh, Southern Democrats, wanted to quiz nominees about their views on Brown versus Board of Education, civil rights, uh, etc. Did the justices or the, the nominees in those early confirmation hearings dodge the how would you rule questions the way that they do today? Was that still considered – was it considered kind of off limits or did they say, you know, I'm not going to answer on things that I might be asked to rule on? You know, I didn't read much one way or another about um, uh, about those hearings. They were narrow. They were short. Uh, as I said, uh, when, when Harlan Stone was testifying, it was about his overseeing of a an aspect of the Teapot Dome uh, uh, scandal when he was attorney general. Um, so it was, it was you know tailored towards that. A lot of the questions weren't about uh, how would you rule. They were they were you know. Uh, Questions on the issues of the day, or whether your, your your ethics and, and and things like that, your experience. Um, so, you know, I, I must admit, I didn't go through the archive to search for the transcript if they exist for for every single one of these things. But um, it was more that you know any controversy that came out was about uh, people's uh, judicial and, and academic writings uh, rather than anything that came out of the hearings. Let's turn now, I guess, to the the New Deal court and and then Roosevelt's 
court packing plan. Can you tell us a bit about that and and the effect that kind of that era had on this whole process? All right. So in the in the last um, vestige of the what's known as the Lochner era, where the Supreme Court would uh, invalidate state and federal laws uh, as uh, intruding on economic liberties, property rights, and, and the like. Uh, the court uh, in, in FDR's first term invalidated a, a good part of uh, the early New Deal. And so Roosevelt was uh, frustrated. Uh, uh, he hadn't had any opportunities to appoint anyone. In fact, that whole entire first term after winning a very comfortable uh, presidential victory in 1932 and trying to uh, put in the early New Deal, he didn't have uh, anyone to appoint at all, no vacancies. So then he's reelected in 1936. Overwhelmingly, this was the as goes Maine, so goes Vermont election. He won all but those two states. Uh, and the, the Democrats had super majorities in both the House and the Senate. And he said, well, look, I'm th- this court, these old men, because the reason there were no vacancies is because they had been appointed somewhat younger. And so it just happened that the, uh, the, actual, the actuarial tables worked in a way that there weren't any retirements uh, or deaths. Uh, and he said, you know, for every justice over 70 and a half, I'm going to appoint uh, a new justice to, to help out the old men who are, are not capable of doing, doing their job. And that conveniently uh, was six justices, and that would have given uh, Roosevelt, uh, you know, overcome the, the otherwise majority that was invalidating his programs. Hugely unpopular. Um, not only did uh, now Charles Evans Hughes, who's the, uh, the chief justice, um, interesting uh, return of events, as it were, uh, testified against it. But Louis Brandeis, still a progressive uh, and a supporter of FDR, uh, sent him a letter saying, uh, or signed a letter saying that uh, I don't agree with this. Uh, uh, John Nance Garner, Roosevelt's own vice president, campaigned against it. He would end up running in the presidential primary in 1940 because uh, FDR dithered for a long time about whether he would run for a re-re-election for a third term. Of course, he ultimately did. But anyway, huge opposition uh, in Congress didn't get a final vote in Congress. And at the 1938 midterms, it proved so unpopular that the Democrats lost 80 seats in the House and eight in the Senate. They had such majorities that that didn't mean that they lost control of those bodies. But it was a big rebuke to Roosevelt. And as it happened, uh, FDR got to pack the court the old fashioned way uh, in the uh, three years following that uh, that failed court packing scheme. He got to make seven nominations at the end of the day uh, and, and as well as elevating um, uh, Stone to, to the chief justiceship. Uh, so um, at the end of the day, uh, the Democrats maintained the White House and the Senate long enough that kind of the natural uh, political turn al- al- allowed uh, FDR to, to pack the court, uh, but just in the, the old fashioned way. As we move into the kind of beginning of the pre-modern era where <clears throat> it seems to me that you have some of your first huge constitutional disputes that sort of in terms of what path is the nation going to co- go forward in the New Deal. And then you have kind of the next set of those in the 50s, especially with Brown and then the the Warren Court. And I think it's sort of forgotten how much the Warren Court at least was the was the beginnings of the creation of the modern conservative legal movement as somewhat of a rebuke to the Warren Court. So, so is that where you kind of put the beginning of the the modern era with the with the Warren Court and the backlash against it, and then we start having more and more of these controversies about ideology rather than region or whether or not you consulted the Senate well enough or something like that? The, the Warren Court was definitely the precursor. Uh, in fact, my, my book, which like Gaul is divided into three, we have the, the past, which is basically George Washington through LBJ uh, ending at 1968, which was a pivotal year in uh, legal affairs in America as much as it was for politics, for culture. Uh, and then the part two, the, 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 the present, as it were, is the, the next 50 years. So you know, Nixon and replacing Warren uh, through um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I, I published this uh, before and it came out. Uh, actually, it came out four days after Justice Ginsburg passed, but I, I submitted the manuscript uh, in, in earlier in, in, in 2020. And then the third part is, which we'll, we'll get to, is the uh, what have we learned and, and proposals for reform. But yeah, the reason that 1968 is that pivot point is because in the uh, in the Eisenhower years, um, you know, Eisenhower tried, he was a moderate Republican, of course, 
uh, and he tried to look for moderates, solid uh, judges or lawyers uh, who would uh, uh, kind of keep the country on track and, and be moderate uh, in their views. But also he wanted to balance things out uh, politically. Uh, nevertheless, uh, he sees he famously said that the, the two biggest mistakes that he had made were both sitting on the Supreme Court. And that was Chief Justice Earl Warren, who, as governor of California, played a major role in helping Eisenhower secure the Republican nomination. And so he rewarded him for that. Uh, and um, uh, Bill Brennan, who uh, uh, was a, a state Supreme Court justice in New Jersey, uh, although um, uh, Ike picked him, and in fact, he was originally a recess appointment a month before the 1956 uh, presidential uh, election when, when Eisenhower was running for re-election. But he picked Brennan, I think knowing that he had to have known that he was more to the left jurisprudentially. He had that record uh, on the state Supreme Court. He was not a uh, shy or retiring personality, uh, but he wanted to shore up, uh, Eisenhower did, his political support among uh, what were known as uh, white ethnics and especially Catholics in the metropolitan Northeast. And so he achieved that. I mean, the 1956 election was a, was a landslide uh, for, for Eisenhower, but then, uh, you know, uh, so he, Eisenhower got what he wanted politically, but perhaps not what he wanted uh, jurisprudentially. And then uh, Warren, somewhat like John Marshall, was so effective in steering the court behind his own uh, progressive views, both on uh, civil rights and on uh, uh, great society programs, kind of the, 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 the expansion of the federal government uh, in the 60s. Uh, but of course, uh, when it came time for LBJ to replace uh, Warren, uh, this is in 1968, and he wanted to elevate uh, his friend and Associate Justice Abe Fortas, uh, ran into a buzzsaw of ethical concerns for doing speeches and, and things like this and not reporting the proceeds, as well as seen as being too much of a crony, uh, famously uh, uh, advising LBJ on things like where to bomb uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Vietnam and, and things like that. Uh, and so Fortas uh, never had a ma- even a majority of support in the Senate. Some call it the first uh, uh, filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee, but it it never really got even to a to majority support, and it was bipartisan uh, opposition for for various reasons. And so, in 1968, LBJ was thwarted, and Nixon, who I think was the first president to campaign a kind of the modern style of judicial philosophy, strict construction. We need law and order justices. We didn't have the the rhetoric about originalism or things like this, but strict construction, law and order. That's what he was talking about. And so, appointed Warren Burger, uh, who was confirmed to be the chief. Um, and away we went with these uh, debates over uh, what kind of justices we want. Nixon famously also had uh, two consecutive uh, failed nominees, Hainsworth, uh, Clement Hainsworth and Harold Carswell, uh, for, for various reasons. He wanted Southern strict constructionists, and then uh, uh, you know, that was foiled by the Senate for, for various reasons. Uh, and Nixon ended up appointing uh, Harry Blackman, the, the, author, the eventual author of uh, of Roe versus Wade. So also kind of plays into this narrative of the conservative legal movement that not only are we opposing the Warren court, but we're snake bit. There, there's always, we're always one vote shy. We're always having presidents who are misfiring for, uh, for one reason or another. Earlier this year, we had Congressman Justin Amash on the show and he mentioned kind of the deleterious effect that television has had on Congress of, you know, senators and representatives performing for the cameras when they're in hearings and other public things. I'm curious about that specifically in the context of confirmation hearings. So when was the first televised confirmation hearing and has TV had an impact on the way that they go, kind of the theatrics and performance of them? Yeah. I mean, uh, it might surprise you that the first, uh, fully televised hearing, not just snippets here and there for the nightly news, but the fully first fully televised hearings were Robert Bork in 1987. Uh, not because Bork was known to be controversial, and we can talk about him, of course, uh, but because that's when C-SPAN got its full privileges to broadcast Senate proceedings. C-SPAN had been started a few years earlier and was mostly focused on the House, uh, and then they got their, their full uh, license, their full permission to to, to broadcast the Senate. And this was the first major nomination in the Senate uh, once C-SPAN gone that. And, and so that certainly 
that wall-to-wall, gavel-to-gavel coverage uh, contributed to the notoriety and spectacle uh, of the Bork hearings. Before that, you, you did have, uh, as I said, there were cameras to, to record things for to put together the nightly news packages, but it wasn't the uh, it, it wasn't the whole hearings. And you met, so you mentioned Bork, uh, which is a good time to get to that. But also, how is the Bork? How is Bork himself? And then, of course, the fact that we created a ner- uh, verb out of his name to Bork someone. But how is that connected to? the rise of the conservative and slash libertarian legal movement that sort of came after Berger. Uh, and I guess I, I'm going to append another question, which I think is related to this based on something you said, which is why is it the conservatives are the ones who are always disappointed seemingly in the justice? Uh, and like, how is that tied to, you know, conservative legal movement and Bork himself? Yeah, it, it is all tied together because first of all, in electing Nixon as, in part, a response to the war, the excesses of the Warren court, um, you know, the impeach Earl Warren bumper stickers and, and billboards, uh, largely a response to Brown v. Board in the civil rights era, some other concerns uh, uh, as well, the court having turned to the left uh, in various ways. The response of conservatives to that, uh, you know, the, the politicians said, no, we need strict constructionist and law and order. But what did that mean? How did it translate? We didn't have a, a robust uh, legal theory. So, uh, you know, we had Alexander Bickle uh, in the 50s, who was a professor and then colleague of Bork at Yale Law School, who said that judges should exercise the passive virtues and be restrained and decide not to decide as much as possible. And so the Borkian or, or conservative reaction to the what they perceived as the uh, as the activism, you know, these days activism just means I disagree with what the judge did, uh, but back then it meant kind of making things up out of whole cloth and uh, and and substituting the judge's policy views for uh, the Constitution or the statute or what have you. And so the response to that was not you got that wrong. Here's a better theory. It's why are you being activists? Judges should be restrained. And so that was very much uh, Bork's view uh, early. Uh, most of Scalia was that that first wave of the of conservative legal theory. Um, a little bit of Rehnquist. Rehnquist was more kind of on the you know, law and order, strict construction sort of side, uh, the, the the proto originalist, uh, if you will. Um, uh, but then, uh, right. So so Bork was the the, the first big controversy uh, because, well, um, uh, for one thing, the Democrats had the control of the Senate. Uh, and again, the, I, I can't emphasize enough how important the divided versus united government uh, dynamic is for, for seeing whether there's going to be controversy or difficulty uh, conser- uh, confirming uh, uh, nominees. Uh, but also, uh, for some reason, the, the Roe v. Wade and the, the growing pro-life movement sort of crystallized in the early 80s and abortion became a major issue for the first time with Bork uh, as well. It's kind of strange, you know, Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. The first nominee after Roe was John Paul Stevens, moderate Republican, nominated by Gerald Ford, was not asked any questions about Roe by either Democrats uh, or Republicans. Neither was Sandra Day O'Connor. I mean, there was one squib of a thing, but not not really, who uh, was Reagan's, uh, Reagan was fulfilling his promise to appoint a woman to the Supreme Court. And he found essentially the highest ranking woman lawyer who was a uh, a state intermediate appellate judge, having been the uh, the state senate uh, uh, majority leader uh, in the Arizona uh, legislature, Sandra Day O'Connor, and then Rehnquist uh, went up as a, as the chief justice to be elevated to be chief justice along with uh, Scalia when the Republicans still had the majority um, in 1986. Rehnquist drew all the heat because of memos that he had written when he was clerking on the court in the 50s. Uh, certain things that he had done when he was in the Justice Department under Nixon uh, and still was managed to be confirmed, again, because the Republicans had a majority. Uh, and uh, Scalia sailed through 98 to nothing. He was affable. He was young. He uh, was the first Italian-American. I can't uh, seem strange now, but that was a, a huge deal back then. And uh, as I write in in the in my book, uh, if Scalia and Bork had been flipped and it came down to those two, if, if Bork had gone up together with Rehnquist when the Republicans still had the majority, it's uh, more likely than not that he would have squeaked through and Scalia would still would have been confirmed, if not unanimously, 
uh, under the Democratic Senate the, the following year. But that's not what happened. And so Bork, who uh, answered his you know, first uh, major uh, uh, error was to answer the senator's questions forthrightly and give a, a tour de force of kind of uh, the, the intellectual legal world, according to Bob Bork. Um, as Paul Simon, senator from Illinois, who was on the Judiciary Committee, would later write, you know, he was there to score debaters' points and, and, and teach the senators rather than getting votes. Uh, and Bork uh, you know, refused to be coached by the Reagan White House, by the Justice Department, uh, which itself was kind of caught on its back foot. They thought that by nominating Bork to replace Lewis Powell, the consummate moderate, they were um, finding someone who just called him as he sees them. And sure, he might be personally conservative or what have you, but this is, this is a judge's judge, a towering intellect, you know, one of the leading uh, scholars uh, and judges. He was on the D.C. Circuit of, of his day and uh, did not expect uh, the, the attack that came immediately. In fact, literally 45 minutes after the nomination was made, when Ted Kennedy went to the Senate floor to uh, talk about, quote, Robert Bork's America, a uh, litany, a, a parade of horribles of what would happen if he was uh, confirmed. And so that's, you know, the first, uh, the first time that someone was shot down uh, for having the, the incorrect uh, judicial philosophy and not playing the game. Again, after Bork, the nominees learned that you, you talk a lot uh, without uh, saying very much. And that was sort of uh, uh, that playbook was uh, 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 consummated or kind of uh, guilted uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg with her pincer movement about not talking about legal theory or generalities because judges should deal with specifics only and then not talking about specifics because those cases might come before her. But uh, yeah, when, when Bork was Borked, uh, that was, you know, I, I don't call that the birth of the modern um, age of judicial confirmation, because as I said, 1968 was so pivotal in how we talk about judicial philosophy uh, uh, ever since. But it was the first major escalation and certainly the, 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 the biggest conflagration at the confirmation hearings live on TV, as you said, Trevor, uh, since the, those 1916 Brandeis hearings. So can we put our finger on what changed? <clears throat> I mean, we, we kind of got over this broad thing and, and Although like Bork is in the beginning, uh, things are different now than they were in, say, 1890 or 1830 in terms of the kind of tests that we're putting on the Supreme Court. So can we put our finger on like what the biggest causes of this change is uh, in, the, in how it's just sort of mean and, and divided and, and just visceral these confirmation hearings have become? Right. I mean, as we've discussed, politics has always been part of the process. And even if more justices were rejected in our country's first century than its second, there is, we do feel that there's something different now. Um, confirmation hearings are the only time that judges go toe-to-toe -to -toe with politicians, and that's definitely a different gauntlet than even uh, President Tyler's nominees ran. So, you know, maybe it's TV and Twitter and the 24-hour news cycle, the, the viral video, uh, or, you know, have legal issues become more ideologically divisive? You know, I, I don't think so. I don't think any of that is, is right. The nomination and confirmation process, which has always been a, a dance among the president, the Senate and outside stakeholders, that hasn't somehow changed beyond the framers recognition. And for that matter, political rhetoric was as nasty in 1820 as it is in 2020. I'm sure you're both familiar with those uh, videos of the uh, of the Jefferson Adams uh uh, uh, election campaign when if you look at the pamphlets and the speeches uh, of that campaign put into a modern attack ad, I mean, it's more, it's more, the, the more rhetorically nasty than, than even what we see now. Uh, but I think all of these parts uh, of the current system that we don't like are symptoms of a larger phenomenon. As government's grown, so have the laws that courts interpret and their reach over ever more of our lives. Uh, and this uh, senatorial brinksmanship, uh, these toxic hearings, that's symptomatic of a larger problem that began long before Bork, uh, you know, let alone Kavanaugh or Garland or, or Clarence Thomas. Uh, and that's the court's self-corruption, uh, aiding and abetting the expansion of federal power, and then shifting that power away from Congress, the people's legislative representatives, and toward uh, uh, executive branch uh, administrative agencies. And so the court and the judiciary more broadly is called upon to decide so many big issues affecting public policy more than it ever did. And those decisions increasingly turn on the party of the president who nominated the judge or justice. 
That is to say, uh, what we have is divergent theories of constitutional and statutory interpretation that map onto party preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted uh, and polarized than at least the Civil War. And so, of course, confirmation battles are going to be fraught because, after all, we have a zero-sum game, whatever the number is, whether it's nine or 15 or the lower court uh, seats, uh, those matter. And there's no way to compromise when you have uh, that kind of dynamic. And so that's uh, that's where we are. It's not that all of a sudden senators are more demagogic than they were in the 1960s uh, or that uh, you know our, our battles now over whatever it is, the Second Amendment or affirmative action are more bitter than the battles over desegregation or the Bank of the United States or, you know, whatever the, the, the issue of the day might be at any given time. But this, this sorting of the parties and the, and the divergence of the interpretive theories uh, brings you to, to what we have. How do we start fixing it then? How do we start returning this, both the court and the, the hearings that put people there, to something that we think is, you know, better or more helpful or more likely to produce quality justices. Um, I mean, one thing you hear about is part of the problem is these are lifetime appointments, you know, so that makes it all on top of all the other stuff of the kinds of cases the court is asked to decide on. When you place someone there, they're there for an awfully long time and so can have a huge influence. And so, of course, we're going to fight about them. So would Setting term limits, lengths of term, only letting them be there for a little while, would that be one way to move things in a better direction? Yeah, there have been a a lot of reform proposals. Term limits is probably the most serious one that keeps coming up uh, again and again. And the the seminal article about this was written by Stephen Calabresi and Jim Lindgren in 2006 uh, in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. I mean, it's exhaustive. It convinced me uh, to be at least two chairs for uh, term limits in the sense that if you had Uh, 18-year terms with a vacancy every two years. And if there's a vacancy because of a death or retirement in the interim, you get to fill the only the remainder of of the given term. Um, That would guarantee each presidential term uh, two and and only two vacancies. You know when they're coming in the non-election years. Uh, And each seat would uh, be worth uh, marginally less because only good for 18 years rather than the 30 plus that that people now uh, can serve. So that would get rid of uh, the uh, politically timed retirements. It would get rid of the morbid health watches over octogenarian justices, which aren't healthy uh, and you know, arbitrary vacancies and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, what it wouldn't do is ideologically rebalance the court. It wouldn't change the nature of the issues that the court is ruling on or uh, change this dynamic that I've described of the divergent interpretive theories given um, you know, mapping on to partisan preferences, which, which causes these, these big fights. Uh, so look, I'm amenable to it in the sense that uh, if it, it would likely enhance public confidence in the court to have regular vacancies. And we know that it's always 18 years. And we know that every time we elect a president, they're going to get two slots, not potentially four, maybe zero, but definitely two. First one's coming next year and then two years after that. That's great. Uh, but it won't solve some of these underlying problems. So we're still, you know, fighting over one of nine very important uh, uh, positions of power for 18 years is still going to be a fight, uh, even if uh, we kind of regularize when it comes about. As far as other proposals are concerned, um, you know, whether you call it court packing or just, you know, just changing the size uh, of the court, um, even if not politically uh, uh, motivated or for partisan uh, gain, you know, now the Democrats, you know, the, the talk was they need to they need to pack the court to uh, rebalance the the illegitimate, the so-called illegitimate justices of the norm-breaking Republicans and what have you. Uh, you know that's not going to depoliticize the court to that have that kind of thing go through. But even if we think about it in neutral terms, if we were drawing up uh, a judiciary or a Supreme Court from scratch, maybe we would want fifteen or nineteen justices because there'd be fewer ten to nine decisions, and each one of that many seats is worth less than each one of nine. So that would diffuse tensions. A little bit. Uh, maybe you'd even have an even number of justices as some countries have. So you'd need a two vote margin to do anything. Uh, maybe. Uh, but uh, how do you get from here to there? I mean, we're su- at such a politicized period and such a, a polarized, divisive period that 
if we got to some sort of compromise or some sort of unity on that kind of question in terms of size, timing, et cetera, well, then wouldn't we, you know, the underlying issues or the underlying divisiveness that this is supposed to fix uh, might not be there in the, in the first place. And then there are other kind of more radical proposals like having, you know, a larger court, but, you know, a certain number reserved explicitly for Republicans, a certain number for Democrats, and then the rest have to be unanimously approved by the so-called partisan justices. Well, it doesn't exactly depoliticize the court to have some justices with an explicit uh, partisan label uh, on them. You know, lots of different creative radical ideas. But at the end of the day, all of this is uh, nibbling around the edges, trying to address symptoms, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Because the problem isn't with the process, the confirmation process or the nomination process. It's with the product. It's that the court uh, is important rules on major political controversies because the federal government uh, is so important and skewed within the federal government, as I said, towards the executive branch that you know, bureaucrats can't be voted out. They can only be sued. Um, and so the, the Titanic is the ship of state. It's taken us decades to get to where we are. Um, and it would only, it would take decades to, to go back. So I have no overnight magic fixes. You know, if I were Tsar or, you know, ruler of the universe, or at least the constitution or our system of government, and I snapped our fingers, um, it, it wouldn't be a matter of reforming the court or changing its structure or changing its jurisdiction even. Uh, it would be rebalancing our constitutional order, enforcing federalism and the separation of powers, kind of like what Team Libertarian did in the National Constitution Projects, uh, Constitution uh, uh, Drafting Project, uh, where uh, Tim Sandifer, Christina Mulligan, and I, we joked that we all we needed to do was add, and we mean it, to every clause uh, in the Constitution. We, we added a, a few other tweaks, but, but that's, you know, that's it. The court corrupted itself. The court is the, uh, by letting the rest of the government, the federal government, get away with so many things, it aggrandized its own power and therefore made each of those um, uh, justice slots uh, so important. And so, uh, you know, the, why people fight, fight over them tooth and nail. And so in the long term, the, the, the only solution, uh, again, not easy, not quick, uh, is to let, uh, you know, Texas be Texas and California be California and Virginia be Virginia, etc. Et you know, the court would still have to resolve questions of civil rights and individual rights that are that are controversial, whether it be abortion or gun rights or or things like that. Uh, but at least uh, we would uh, uh, have a more uh, you know, orderly system of government and have these uh, the, the, the justices be be less important. But again, um it's tough uh, because the court, the constitutional order is reflective of the people. And if the people are so divided with so different visions, then, you know, the starting place has to be having fewer one size fits all mandates or other dis policy decisions made by Washington uh, and by the uh, black robed arbiters of one first street for such a large, diverse and pluralistic society. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.